Good evening, everybody. Um, thank you all very much for coming. My name is James Watt. I'm the chairman of CBRL. Uh, I'm so delighted to have you here this evening. And before introducing our lecturer, could I just um, mention that we are, uh, as you know, fundraising for our travel grants uh, scheme. These are uh, bursaries which enable young researchers to travel out at minimum cost and with great austerity uh, to our region. Uh, to conduct their research. And any contribution any of you could make uh, to this would be hugely welcome. We're suggesting 10 pounds uh, because this is otherwise a free event. But those of you who do feel able to contribute to that, uh, that fund for our young, uh, young scholars, um, there are collection boxes outside the door here and down at the entrance uh, to, to the academy. Thank you very much. Um, it's my great pleasure to introduce an old friend, Dr. Neil Faulkner, uh, to give us uh, this lecture on Lawrence of Arabia, romantic orientalist and Western cultural artifact. Um, I've known Neil for his work in Jordan, where I've spent some time myself. Uh, he has done a lot of work, very original work, on the archaeology of the Great Arab Revolt, which, as I think all of you know, broke out in 1916. And so that sounds rather like recent archaeology, but it has been no less revealing, I think, uh, what he's been able to discover to add to what we know of the written record of the Great Arab Revolt and the subsequent, the subsequent campaigns. So without more ado, I'm going to ask Emil uh, to take, take the microphone. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody, and um, thank you for coming. I understand from the organizers that it's turned out to be a very popular lecture, which I can only assume is down to Lawrence rather than to me. Um, and I guess that that is a theme we're going to be exploring because um, the CBRL asked me not to give an archaeological lecture, but to focus on Lawrence as a kind of cultural icon uh, evolving over the last uh, hundred years. And I'm going to start with Lawrence himself. I'm going to talk about why Lawrence came to play a particular role. I'm going to talk about why he, I'm talking about how he viewed uh, the Middle East, and I think his view of the Middle East was, um, in serious respects, uh, flawed. And now I'm going to talk about the way in which I think those flaws have continued right up until the present. And I am going to end with the, the very present, the contemporary past, as we now sort of call it, um, in archaeological uh, discourse, and try and leave um, a good bit of time for questions and discussion. And I say discussion as well. If people want to uh, chip in with points of discussion, that would be um, welcome. Um, I'm, I'm going to start with some... Uh, some family history, and I use uh, this uh, slide really to talk about Lawrence's family history because um, I, I, I drop in uh, this photograph of his father, which we now have as a result of research done by Dick Benson Giles. And until a few years ago, we didn't actually have a picture of Lawrence's father, Thomas Chapman, because he was usually behind the camera when family photographs were taken. And I put it in just for that reason, really, so we actually can see him. We can see the photographer, if you like, who has taken this uh, photograph, which is the family, almost complete, uh, four boys, 
uh, in order, Bob, Ned, as he was known in the family, who is our man, Thomas Edward Lawrence, uh, Will, uh, Frank, and then Arnold is yet to come, so he's not um, in the photograph, and Lawrence's mother, of course, Sarah Juna. And I use this photograph to make... um, the first salient point, really, about Lawrence and why he evolves in a particular way. And, and it is this point. Uh, he was illegitimate. And I suspect that if that was not the case, we wouldn't be talking about him today, we wouldn't have heard about him, because I think that has a profound impact on his psychological uh, development, the direction in which he moves, and I'm going to try and explain why I think that is. Um, and so we're talking really about the shaping of a personality who is going to move towards romanticism and orientalism. Now, I have to be quite cagey about this because um, one of the reviews of the book, which was otherwise very favourable, uh, criticised me for psychobabble. Um, so I'm going to be very, very cagey about how much psychobabble... I subject you to. But actually, I think without the assistance of Dr. Freud, uh, we can't really get to grips with the complexities of Lawrence's uh, character. I use, incidentally, this Eric Kennington sketch that was done for Seven Pillars of Wisdom and then not included uh, in the book, because Lawrence didn't like it, um, to focus us, really, on this tortured man, unhappy man, as I think he was. I think he had a kind of identity crisis which never left him, I think he's still grappling with questions about his identity at the end of his life. Um, He's a descendant of the Anglo-Irish aristocracy. He was actually born in Wales as the family moved around, but he was brought up um, in Oxford. Most of his life, most of his his youth was spent in um, Oxford. Um, He inherited his landed gentry status, I suppose, if he had it, uh, from his father... Um, but he was brought up as a member of the kind of upper middle class in Oxford. But his mother, Sarah Juna, um, was from a working class background, and a very modest working class background um, originally. What had happened was that Thomas Chapman had fallen in love with the governess of his four daughters, had run off with her, and Thomas Chapman's wife was never willing to grant a divorce. So it was never possible to legitimise the relationship between Thomas Chapman and Sarah Juno. So Lawrence and his brothers were illegitimate, and I think that that was something that mattered at that time in a way that it doesn't now, and in particular it mattered in that social class. It's difficult to think of a more uh, morally judgmental and repressive social class than the late Victorian and Edwardian um, English middle class, and the consequence of that prejudice that there was at the time, the stigma associated with illegitimacy, was significant psychological damage. So Lawrence is not respectable, nor is he normal uh, in um, a sexual sense. I think he was probably gay, but he was a repressed homosexual, I think, throughout his life. And he certainly suffered from a sadomasochistic disorder. I'll come to that shortly. And he had a very problematic relationship with his mother, Uh, throughout um, his life, and not least when he was uh, growing up um, in North Oxford. Now, here comes the psychobabble, but I'm going to restrict it to just making a few um, observations about uh, 
aspects of his psychology. I'm not going to try and explain it. I'm not going to try and put it all together. I'm just going to put these statements about what is going on inside his head as he grows up. As he grows up as a teenager in North Oxford, and then he attends uh, Jesus College Oxford, so his whole education um, is in Oxford, and then he sort of embarks on adult life. Um, I think there are various psychological problems that are working their way uh, through his head that he's he's struggling with um, in these uh, years, and I think they help us to understand why he moves in a particular um, direction. I hope that those statements that I'm making about him, about his psychology, about his condition, about how troubled he was because so many of these things were considered to be unacceptable in the social group to which he belonged and where he was being brought up, I hope that that sort of gives us a sense of why he becomes um, a romantic and an orientalist. And he, he he has this psychological vulnerability throughout life I put up these three photographs taken at different moments in life and they're all revealing, um, if you are reading the character psychoanalytically, um, in this family photograph, which will have been taken by Thomas Chapman, Lawrence's father, um, of, the, of the five boys, there are now all five of them, there's Arnold, the youngest. Lawrence is the one who's not looking at the camera. Um, In this photograph, which is taken in 1917, of course, at the time of the Arab Revolt, he's the one who is, and although this looks like an accident, it won't be an accident, he's quite deliberately not looking at the camera and finding something else to do, which is looking at his wristwatch. And there is this uh, photograph where he's with a group of dignitaries at the Cairo conference in 1921, where he looks extremely awkward. That is the real... Lawrence, not the kind of Peter O'Toole, you know, action hero. That's the real Lawrence, who is a psychologically very vulnerable um, individual. And how does he deal with it as he's growing up in North Oxford, attending, first of all, the city of Oxford School for Boys? Here he is in the sixth form, in the back row, then attending Jesus College, Oxford. He becomes a romantic, a romantic with a hero complex, And I think this is about escape. It's about escape from a condition where there is a social condition, where there is a risk of exposure and disgrace and a stigma associated with that, and where there is also a problem of lack of inner self-worth, self-esteem. And an escape from that into a fantasy world, a kind of medieval fantasy world, a romantic world, it's illustrated, indicated in all kinds of ways, I think, in Lawrence's behaviour as, uh, as a teenager and then as a young man. This, this, for example, is a Lawrence brass rubbing, because one of the things he would do is he'd cycle out into the countryside and he'd do a brass rubbing in a local church, because he was fascinated by the Middle Ages, fascinated by Crusader knights, fascinated by um, the Arthurian um, heroes... And he's in the right frame, really, for this kind of retreat into medieval uh, romanticism. Oxford was suffused with the kind of pre-Raphaelite and arts and crafts culture of romanticism um, at the time. Um, He talks about Morris, William Morris, 
Um, this is a very late on, a letter to Charlotte Shaw, George Bernard Shaw's wife, in 1927. He says, I'd rather Morris than the world. He sees Morris as a kind of inspirational um, artist, and there's a lot of Morris and other pre-Raphaelite and arts and crafts influence in Oxford. He carries, we're told... Uh, no, he tells us that he carries only three books around with him on campaign, and one of those three books is Le Mort d'Arthur, uh, the most famous rendering in English of the Arthur legends. He's carrying this around with him on campaign, as in a sense he is living out a modern version of those Arthurian legends in the course of the um, Arab revolt. And then there are these uh, three... I'm not going to read them out. I assume everybody... Can everybody at the back read what is written on the screen? Is that OK? Good. OK, I'm not going to, so I'm not going to read to you what's written on the screen. You can read it as I talk to it. Um, these three separate remarks, one made by Lawrence um, himself in 1922, so that's from Seven Pillars of Wisdom, one a comment uh, about him by the novelist E.M. Forster, who was a, um, an interwar friend of Lawrence's, and I couldn't find the exact date for this, but sometime in the 1930s Forster said this, and then Basil Littlehart, the military historian, who was also a friend of Lawrence in the interwar period and wrote actually what is, I think, quite a good military biography um, of Lawrence. He says this. It's all the same basic idea. The idea that you immerse yourself in a kind of romantic fantasy world where you imagine yourself playing a heroic role. It's the kind of thing, of course, that lots of teenage boys, I suppose, imagine themselves doing, playing some kind of heroic role. But perhaps Lawrence's emotional development is retarded and he sort of retains that in, perhaps in a way that most of us um, do not and then I think attempts to live it out extraordinarily in terms of his biography he is given the opportunity to live out the fantasy, the fantasy of playing a heroic role um, in a kind of romantic um, setting but where and this brings me to my second major theme in relation to Lawrence's biography, which is his Orientalism. Of course, um, what the Romantics are doing is reacting against industrial capitalism, they're reacting against materialism, they're reacting against the slums, and all of those things, all of those features of the modern world which they are critiquing, which they, they dislike. Morris, in particular, of course, because he was actually a revolutionary socialist, as well as being um, a, a kind of romantic artist. They're reacting against that, but of course that's the world that, for which where Lawrence can't act out a real romantic, heroic mission, um, which is where the Middle East comes in, because the Middle East is a place where potentially that kind of role might be played out in the early part of the 20th century. And his his engagement with the Middle East begins when he's an undergraduate. And he, he spends several months walking around Syria, collecting information for an undergraduate dissertation. He's making sketches, taking photographs, making notes and so on. And he turns it into his undergraduate dissertation at Oxford, which is 19, in 1909, this is Crusader Castles, becomes Crusader Castles. And he begins to learn Arabic, he begins to become familiar with the landscape, with the people of the Middle East. He begins, I think, a kind of love affair with the region and its uh, people. I think a love affair that explodes and disintegrates 
um, as a result of the Arab revolt. But at the moment, he's fascinated by the Middle East. And so when he graduates, his academic mentors at Oxford, they shoehorn him into what is effectively... What is, it's his first job. Nowadays, we describe um, his role as that of assistant director or deputy director on the excavation at Carchemish um, on the Syria-Turkey border today. And, sorry, and there he is sitting um, on the excavation site next to Leonard Woolley, who latterly was the excavation director. And Lawrence's primary role on the excavation was actually to manage the Arab workforce, which meant that in the course of the four years he's involved in this excavation, his Arabic is improving all the time. He's effectively fluent by the time the First World War breaks out. And he has an intimate knowledge of the Bedouin tribes, the Syrian landscape, the local culture, and so on. He becomes an Arabist, but a particular kind of Arabist, an Arabist who is viewing the Middle East through Orientalist uh, spectacles. This provides his opportunity when the war breaks out. And he does what virtually all young men of his class do when the war breaks out. He, he doesn't have any military background at all, incidentally. I, mean, I think the a brief stint in the OTC, but I don't think he distinguished himself. Um, so effectively, he is he's an amateur wartime soldier um, who is signing up um, when the war breaks out. Um, not initially as a soldier, he's, because he's, he's taken straight into British intelligence, and then they decide to give him a commission, because he's wandering around the war office in civvies, and that's considered to be bad form. So they, they turn him into a second lieutenant. And then he's shipped out to Cairo um, at the end of 1914, because, of, because he's an Arabist, and because the Ottoman Empire has come into the war at the end of October, the beginning of November. So there's then a major, major security problem for the British in the uh, Middle East. And with the first two years of the war, he's just an intelligence officer doing a desk job in Cairo. Until he gets an opportunity to go out to the Middle East, uh, to, to Arabia, on a diplomatic mission in October 1916, the Arab revolt having broken out in June 1916, and that's when he first meets um, Faisal, uh, the Arab leader, relatively young um, Arab leader, with whom he's going to be primarily associated. Um, and on a second visit in December, January, so 1916-1917, a relationship which has begun to form between Lawrence and Faisal is consolidated, and Faisal himself makes the request of the British that they attach Lawrence to his staff, Faisal's staff, as a liaison officer. So for the second half of the war, he's a liaison officer. And that provides the context for the role which, of course, he becomes famous for. And, I, and, it, and with full justification, one, I'm not going to say very much about the archaeological project, but I'll just say this. Um, one of the things we did in the archaeological project was we ground-truthed seven pillars of wisdom. The argument about seven pillars of wisdom being largely a confection is dead because the archaeology again and again and again was, was able to confirm the accuracy of what Lawrence uh, was saying. Um, so we have to trust that. So I think we now say, yes, he definitely was playing a major role in the war. He was a guerrilla leader. He was going out on active operations. And the things that he's actually reporting in seven pillars um, really did um, happen. 
But, and I'm coming back now to this other theme of Orientalism, through this period, uh, Crusader castles, the excavation at Carchemish, um, and then his involvement, first of all as an intelligence officer in the Middle East, and then as an active combatant um, with the Arab uh, revolt, he views all the time the Middle East through Orientalist uh, spectacles. And again, I'm not going to read them, I'm just going to let you take in some of those, those are just a, a selection of things that Lawrence is saying at different times um, in his life that gives us an indication of how he has a kind of ideal vision of the, the pure, the unsullied uh, Arab, in a sense, who's the Arab of the desert, who is the, the Bedouin, unsullied by Westernism, unsullied by modern um, development, and that Arab of the desert so different from uh, the Turk and so on. These are Orientalist ways, of course, of viewing uh, the people um, of the Middle East. And that Orientalist perspective is laced with the sense, this in a way is, the, is one of the con- central contradictions in Orientalism, is that on the one hand you see um, a kind of ideal representation of humanity, on the one hand, in the sort of unsullied Arabs of the desert. On the other, they are regarded as children who need to be guided. So a lot of his language when he's talking to fellow officers about how you operate uh, with the Arab forces is very much paternalistic uh, language about guiding the Arabs, manipulating the Arabs, in effect. I'm going to have more to say about that in just a moment. But I just want to make a quick reference to Dahoum, um, who I think is probably the SA. There are massive arguments about this among all Lawrence specialists. I think probably Dahoum is the SA to whom that dedicatory poem is dedicated at the beginning of Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Because Lawrence clearly had a very intimate relationship with Dahoum, who was a a, a, a young man working on the Carchemish um, excavation, a very close relationship. I don't think it was ever, ever physical, but I, I strongly suspect that Lawrence uh, had a homoerotic interest um, in Dehoom. And the language of the dedicatory poem sort of implies that, if Dehoom is correctly identified. And I think these two, these two photographs are, are particularly interesting in this regard, uh, because we have Lawrence putting on to whom's clothes and to whom then taking a photograph um, of Lawrence just before he's ready, actually. He's not quite posing. Um, and there's that kind of intimacy between these two um, young men. This is the, this, who is to whom? To whom is the noble savage? He's the idealised Bedouin of the Orientalist gaze, um, if you like. He's, he's like an Arab Antinous uh, to use, I'm picking up that sort of, uh, you know, Hadrian's obsession with the, with the beautiful Greek boy. It's that kind of idea, I think, that's represented in that relationship. Now, let me... I'm going to sort of step back a bit for a moment from the immediacy of, uh, of, of, of what Lawrence is thinking and how Lawrence is viewing the Middle East to talk in slightly more general terms about Orientalism and what I'm calling here imperial attitudes... You see, I think there are really three different ways of looking at the Middle East and indeed looking at the the colonised 
what we would later call the third world um, in this period. There are, there's a conservative imperialism, a kind of hawkish imperialism that is simply repressive and where the intention is just to exploit the resources and the people of the regions which the different European powers uh, control. There are some very brutal kinds of imperialism that are represented and not just by, um, you know, by the British. And, and I give the example of the Iraqi revolt of 1922. There was a revolution in Iraq in 1922, and it was murderously suppressed by the British Empire because they had, you know, they had grabbed Iraq for themselves at the end of, of, the, of the war. Here was a, a genuine Iraqi independence movement that was militarily uh, crushed, and this particular figure played a major role in that. The civil commissioner of Iraq at the time, Arnold Wilson, I put him in because um, he fell out particularly badly with Gertrude um, Bell, and I'm going to come to her in just a second. But Lawrence first. There's another kind of imperial attitude which is very much in play in this period, represented by Bell, also represented by Lawrence, and represented by lots of other people who were involved in British colonial administration after the First World War. It's a kind of liberal imperialism. It's about clients, or if you want to be critical, collaborators. It's about the imperial power taking responsibility for creating infrastructure, for driving through reforms, for bringing civilization to these benighted parts um, of, the, of the world. And this is unquestionably where we have to situate Lawrence. Lawrence was, I'm going to put a label on him, he was a liberal imperialist. It's one of the reasons why he didn't like, the, like French imperialism, because it was trying to change the realities on the ground, whereas what Lawrence is sort of saying is we embrace the realities on the ground. And what's the theory here? The theory is that we are guiding these people towards self-government. That's the kind of Lawrence vision, if you like, for Iraq. It's the Gertrude Bell vision as well. I can see a cure only in immediate change of policy, he says with regard to the violent suppression of the Iraqi revolution um, in 1920. Uh, 1920. And who is who's going to play a key role um, in this? Well, it's, it's Faisal, of course. And Faisal is brought in and installed as effectively a client ruler um, in Iraq after the suppression of the revolt. Now... The idea that Europeans were going to teach the rest of the world how to govern themselves was ludicrous at the time. Europe was the continent of warring states. The Europeans had been killing each other with gusto since the fall of the Roman Empire. They had just launched a murderous world war that had killed 15 million people. 20 years later, they would launch another one that would kill 60 million people. The idea that somehow the Europeans were going to be teaching the rest of the world how they should manage their affairs, how they should organise their affairs, was ludicrous at the time. And the argument doesn't stand up that says, well, we have to view people like Lawrence and people like Bell and other liberal imperialists in the context of their time. Because there was another perspective on this. 
a perspective current at the time that recognised an imperialist carve-up for what it was. This, of course, is the famous map of the Sykes-Pico agreement, um, a, a, an imposition on the Middle East which David Frumpkin summed up as a peace to end um, all peace. That's one of those book, you know, book titles to absolutely die for. I mean, if you come up with something like that, you're going to sell lots of books. And what have we seen in the Middle East in the century since they did it? We have seen, of course, um, a century um, of war which is, which is ongoing. And there were lots and lots of active political forces in the world at the time who were challenging this. So here's my third kind of imperial attitude, if you like. And I think it's a pity in a way that there's such fascination with Gertrude Bell. You know, she's, she's, she'd been turned into a film by Werner uh, Herzog, where you see sort of uh, Nicole Kidman sort of wafting around, you know, the computer-generated sand dunes looking absolutely pristine. There's a very uh, successful biography just been, uh, you know, came out a few years ago about her. The problem with Bell is she's a, I mean, she's a liberal imperialist. Um, she's part of the system. She's embedded in the system. She plays a central role in Iraq in shoehorning the client king, Faisal, um, into his position. What a pity we don't talk about some of those other women who have a very different perspective on imperialism, like Sylvia Pankhurst, who is an anti-imperialist, who is on the side of the working class at home and who is on the side of the colonially oppressed peoples um, in the Middle East and in other parts of the, uh, the European-dominated um, world. Now, this is, this is not, this is not a, a radical voice in a corner. The world is on fire between 1917 and 1923. There is a wave of revolution sweeping across Europe and waves of mass resistance um, in the colonies, and there are powerful political forces that are putting themselves at the head of it. Lawrence could have broken with British imperialism if he had chosen to do so. I think we need to be very, very clear that he is choosing to remain embedded within the British imperial establishment, and I think it's to a large degree because he has this um, Orientalist um, perspective. Now, I'm not going to say very much, I said this already, about the project, because I was asked... Well, they didn't, say, they didn't say don't talk about the project. What they said was they wanted, CBRL, wanted me to talk about Orientalism and Romanticism and all that. I'm going to talk about the movie in a minute as well. Um, so that's what I'm doing. But I will just say this, because I want to give you the kind of, you know, the nub of it. What did, what did we find out? I've already said we ground-truthed Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which I think is very important. Um, and I think what we also demonstrated was that the railway war which I represent here with this um, mosaic of air reconnaissance photographs that were done by X-Flight um, at the time of the First World War. This is Madora down by the Saudi border, one of the sites that we investigated. That's the railway. There's the station. Um, the railway war, which is essentially a, a, a hit-and-run guerrilla war with this Ottoman supply line running from Damascus all the way down to Medina as the spine of the war, uh, in a sense, was extremely effective in tying down huge numbers of Ottoman soldiers and draining Ottoman military strength away from the, uh, the conventional campaign which is being waged in Palestine. Allenby's breakthrough at Gaza and then his breakthrough at Armageddon 
These great British victories in the Middle East are to a large extent made possible by the draining away of Ottoman resources by the insurgency. And I do think it is true. And, you know, here I disagree with, you know, some of the Arab nationalist uh, takes on this who want to minimise the role um, of Lawrence. I think it's probably wrong to say that he's just an agent of British imperialism or he's a minor figure um, in the revolt. I think the reality is that he, he had the ear of Faisal. Faisal's army is by far the most important, and I think to a very large extent, because of his influence with Faisal and the other Arab leaders around Faisal, he's having a real influence on strategy. And he has a conception of how to fight the war, and that conception is modern guerrilla warfare. He understands the theory and practice, or he develops an understanding of the theory and practice of modern guerrilla warfare, summed up in these three different pieces that appear Um, after the war, um, but for me encapsulated in this uh, quotation from Seven Pillars of Wisdom, where, I will read this, suppose we were, as we might be, an influence, an, an idea, a thing intangible, invulnerable, drifting without front or back, drifting about like a gas. This is camel mounted gorillas moving through the open spaces of the desert. Armies, like the Ottoman army, were like plants, immobile, firm-rooted, nourished through long stems to the head. We might be a vapour blowing where we listed. Ours should be a war of detachment. We were to contain the enemy by the silent threat of a vast, unknown desert. That absolutely sums up this conception of how to fight a modern guerrilla war. I think, you know, Lawrence is the practitioner, Lawrence is the theorist, and Lawrence is a major, major influence on how the Arab leaders in Faisal's army, at any rate, are conducting the war. And then, of course, at the end of the war, he suffers a mental breakdown. Um, It's a kind of slow-motion mental breakdown, which is unfolding, I suppose, up until 1921, 1922. Um, That mental breakdown, I think, is triggered by guilt. I think it's triggered by his sense that he has led men into battle and has sometimes led them to their deaths on the basis of a lie. And it's the lie of British imperialism. The Arabs are going to have a united independent country after the war at the same time as they've cut a deal with their French allies to carve up uh, the Middle East. I think he emerges out of the war riddled with guilt. And as I've suggested to you already, he's psychologically a vulnerable person. He suffers a collapse as he's being turned into a celebrity by Lowell Thomas, which we come to in just a moment. Um, Even as he continues to play a role in public life, here he is as an advisor to Faisal at the Versailles Peace Conference in 1919, still active in post-war Middle Eastern diplomacy as late as 1921. We've seen this image already. This is where we see him... Um, at the Cairo conference, headed by Churchill. He's suffering a mental collapse. He's writing Seven Pillars of Wisdom as an act of catharsis. He's actively trying to salvage something from the peace on behalf of the Arabs with whom he has fought. Um, And he is, at the same time, um, you know, he's, he's, he's viewing the whole situation through this, through this orientalist gaze which dominates the, his responses. Now, that's him. Let's 
look a little bit at how this is playing out in the post-war period right up to the present. This is, if you like, a sort of part two. There are different ways of imagining Lawrence. There are many ways of imagining Lawrence. He's endlessly being reconfigured. We can imagine him as an Arthurian hero if we are Eric Kennington and we are sculpting a tomb effigy for him in the 1930s where he looks like a crusader knight. We can imagine him as a boy's own hero, a comic book hero. And there are still you know, new versions coming out all the time of Lawrence as the, you know, the hero of a graphic um, novel, as we're supposed to call comics nowadays. We can imagine him much later, uh, not before the war, but certainly after the Second World War, we can imagine him as a post-imperial hero um, through whom are refracted all of the, the contradictions and the debates that are going on as empire disintegrates in the 1950s and the 1960s. So the Terence Rattigan play, Ross, for example, is exploring some of that. Um, Alec Guinness... Uh, playing the lead role when it premiered on the West End stage in 1960. But this is the, this is the imagining of Lawrence that I want to focus on. It's the Orientalist imagining um, of Lawrence, which is rooted in the work of Lowell Thomas and Lawrence himself. And I'm, but I'm also going to talk about the film. There, there are modern biographies that reflect this Orientalist view. I think the Michael Asher biography that came out in 1999 falls into this category, and certainly the whole way in which Lean uh, films Lawrence of Arabia in 1961-62 is very much in, of this uh, genre, uh, the blue-eyed, blonde-haired, white-clad Western hero amid this dark mass of other Humanity. I mean, these are, these are profoundly Orientalist images right the way through the film. I'll come back to that um, in just a moment. Let me, let me roll the film back, first of all, to Thomas. Because, um, of course, nobody had heard of Lawrence at the end of the war. Uh, Lawrence was turned into a celebrity by this man, Lowell Thomas, who turns Lawrence into a show, or part of a show in 1919, which first of, all, first of all goes out on Broadway in New York and then transfers to London, to Covent Garden, and then goes to other London venues and later tours the provinces. And when, when Thomas, who was a journalist and he'd collected a certain amount of material, had photographs and, and so on, um, when he first turned this into a show in 1919, the emphasis was very much on Allenby, and the Egyptian expeditionary force, and what was happening in Palestine, um, what Thomas found was that audiences were more interested in Lawrence. And so, um, subsequently, the title changes. You can actually see the process here. Um, It was originally with Allenby in Palestine, the Lowell Thomas travelogues, and it becomes with Allenby in Palestine and Lawrence in Arabia. Um, But he didn't have quite enough material, so some studio portraits were done. Uh, Lawrence didn't look like this when he was on campaign in the desert. Pristine white robes. Um, He even put his his lipstick on. Um, This is a studio portrait done in 1919 to sort of beef up um, the Lawrence uh, element of the Lowell Thomas show. Here's another one. 
What's interesting about these, of course, well, they're interesting in many ways. One thing that's interesting is that Lawrence is playing up to the role. Lawrence is obviously collaborating with Thomas in providing additional material so Thomas can present him as a kind of popular um, hero. And because the show is so successful, Thomas brings out um, the first, um, well, I would call it a biography if it contained any factual information. But since it doesn't, let us call it a work of fiction purporting to be the first biography of Lawrence. This comes out in 1924 and is an immediate bestseller. And from now on, because Thomas has launched the Lawrence legend, anything about Lawrence becomes a bestseller. It becomes a sellout. Um, Lawrence himself is contributing um, in that strange way of his, because he was, had, he was very ambivalent about the role that he played. He was very ambivalent about his fame. Thomas accused him of forever backing into the limelight. He was fascinated by his fame at the, and at the same time repelled by it, which is all bound up with the guilt he felt coming out of the war. But he's part of this packaging of an Orientalist hero. He sits for leading artists like Augustus John in his Arab robes, in his guise, in his persona as Lawrence of Arabia. And, of course, there is this great book um, which is, has an extremely complicated history. I'm going to just give you an indication of how complicated it is. First manuscript lost. The 1922 edition nobody reads because it's too long. And originally, only eight copies, we think, were printed. Then there's an abridged subscriber's edition that comes out in 1926, but only about 200 copies of that were made. Um, then there's an extreme abridgment of Seven Pillars, which is Revolt in the Desert, and that does come out in a trade edition in 1927. Um, not until Lawrence's death is the subscriber's edition of Seven Pillars of Wisdom brought out in a trade edition. I hope you're keeping up with this. And then, only in 2004, interestingly, is the original 1922 manuscript actually turned into um, a trade book. You can't get it anymore. The, the, the prices on, um, on, uh, on aid books are, actually, are, are eye-watering for this, this new... Well, last time I looked, they were, anyway. Uh, this, this new version of the original 1922 edition. Now, Seven Pillars of Wisdom is a kind of weird contribution, isn't it, to the legend, because... On the one hand, he's creating it, and there's much discussion about this uh, book, but very few people actually can get their hands on a copy until Lawrence's death. This is Lawrence backing into the limelight, if you like. He's helping friends of his, like Robert Graves, to write books about him. The first proper biography of Lawrence is written by Graves and comes out in 1927, and it's effectively an official biography because Lawrence annotated... Uh, Graves' manuscript, brought his own extreme abridgment of Seven Pillars of Wisdom out in the same year. So this is the Lawrence Circle, if you like, amplifying the legend, building the idea of Lawrence of Arabia. Likewise, Basil Little Hart's biography, which I think is quite a good biography, even now, which is a military appreciation. Again, it's almost like an official biography because Lawrence has gone through uh, the manuscript. And then with Lawrence's death in May 1935, we have the first 
uh, trade edition of the 1926 subscribers edition of Seven Pillars um, of Wisdom. That becomes an instant bestseller, and it's remained in print ever since. I suspect that it's a book where, if you look at the relationship between the number of copies sold and the number of copies successfully read from cover to cover, the gap is very, very wide. A lot of people try and fall by the wayside along the way. Um, But nonetheless, um, it is a bestseller. And then, because I can't talk about everything, um, I thought I would focus on the movie. Um, Having talked about the Lowell Thomas show a bit, I'm going to talk about the movie a bit, because nothing compares with a movie in terms of public impact. Nothing. And the David Lean movie in 1960, comes out in 1962, has the same impact as the Lowell Thomas show had in 1919. This relaunches the Lawrence of Arabia legend, if you like, for a new generation. And I think... Uh, This film is, I think it's a fascinating film, I think it's a brilliant film, Um, I think it can be read at so many different uh, levels, Um, but I'm going to focus on one particular aspect of it. I want to talk a little bit about the Orientalism, which which deeply informs just about everything in the film, and in making those critical comments, I don't want that to detract from the brilliance of Robert Bolt, The screenplay writer, it is one of the great screenplays in cinema history, and the reason it's so fantastic is because Bolt was a man of conscience, a man of the left, a man who understood the kind of crisis, the kind of psychological crisis that Lawrence was going through as a result of his participation in the revolt. Bolt was actually in prison when he was supposed to be writing the script, incidentally. He had to be Sam, you know, zillions of dollars Hollywood producer Sam Spiegel turns up and pays his fine to get him out um, because he'd sat down with Bertrand Russell and the Committee of 100 in opposition to the, the bomb. And, you know, man, um, A Man for All Seasons is a, is a Bolt play. Bolt was very, very interested in these whole conscience things. So he, the whole screenplay is watching the disintegration of this hero, really, destroyed by the inner guilt, by the demons of guilt. And, of course, Lean was that fantastic director... Um, of, of the great epic. That goes without saying. And he portrays the desert. He portrays the desert in a way it had never been done before and has never been done since. If you watch Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, and then you compare it with Werner Herzog's computer-generated sand dunes in the, in the, in the Gertrude Bell film, you see you know, the difference uh, immediately. It's a film about betrayal and guilt and madness. It's like a Greek tragedy. It's a modern version of a Greek tragedy set against these absolutely spectacular uh, landscapes. Um, But it's also Orientalist. It's also about uh, constructing visions of what I'm calling here Arabness. I take uh, this as one of my examples, um, and, and I mention this because we have now, we're quite interested in the archaeology of cinema, actually, me and my mates, and um, we've actually visited uh, this site, which is um, where they constructed the oasis, and it's in uh, Spain, it's in south, southeastern Spain, in Almeria, and it's, was this, this oasis was constructed by the Lean team, and then they used it for lots of other films as well. And, of course, no, no real oasis actually looks like this. 
So this is what an oasis is supposed to look like. So this is a construction of Arabness um, in, in, um, in the film. The whole thing is a, is, a, is a kind of construct. There are characters who are clearly Orientalist stereotypes. Most obviously, I think, the, uh, the Anthony Quinn character playing Auda Abu uh, Tai. And I put, you know, the, perhaps this is the most classic scene. Uh, if you remember, what happens immediately after this is he... He hurls the clock onto the ground and smashes it because it's not working. So this is the the primitive savage, if you like, who is being depicted um, here. And then there's the Damascus scene, um, where where everything degenerates into chaos. Well, of course it degenerates into chaos because they're tribal Arabs, aren't they? They can't possibly agree. They can't possibly form a government. The whole thing is bound to fall to bits. And notice the way in which it is depicted where, again, we have our blue-eyed, blonde-haired, white-clad voice of sanity, image of sanity, in the chaos of dark humanity um, all around him. I think the film helps to create a new kind of Orientalist take, really, on Lawrence of Arabia and what is happening, perhaps more generally, in the Middle East... Um, at the time of the First World War, I think a lot of the output, uh, comics and uh, books for children and, uh, and so on, a lot of the output which follows from the movie um, is very much a, a new kind of Orientalism where we have this sort of Western uh, hero who is, who is centre stage in the events which are um, unfolding. And I think it is still with us. And... Um, I'm glad that my timing has been quite good because I am coming to the conclusion and then we've got plenty of time for uh, discussion. Um, I'm going to bring it right up to the very present um, and I'm going to use this as my example. Um, there, was a, there was a documentary made which went out, BBC Two documentary, which went out, I think, I don't know, three or four, no, maybe ten years ago. Um, because we had a small bit part in it, because we were working uh, in the field at the time, about ten minutes of one of the two documentaries, it was a two-parter, about ten minutes is us toiling away at Baton al-Hul. And so I I became aware of Rory Stewart at that time. I hadn't heard about him before, but I've learnt a little bit about him since. And, of course, he played quite a big role um, in events as they unfolded in Afghanistan and also events as they unfolded in uh, Iraq. And um, he had clearly uh, acquired a kind of fascination with the Lawrence figure and perhaps in some sense almost imagined himself playing a kind of Laurentian-type role in events as they unfolded in Central Asia and the Middle East. And certainly if you watch the documentary, the discussion about Lawrence and what Lawrence did. Uh, did is intercut with images of what is going on um, in the Middle East um, at the moment. So Lawrence is being, again, brought into an Orientalist framework for thinking about, talking about, discussing what is going on in the Middle East. It's harder when it's right up to the present to actually see this, and I think we have to try and do that. Um, There is a lot of very dubious material being generated at the moment. I give this as one example. Samuel Huntington's 
the clash of civilizations. And as you can see from Huntington's map, there are many different civilizations that in a sense are defined uh, essentially by um, ethnicity and religion. And the implication is that there are distinct cultures which are in conflict with each other uh, in the modern world. And this is really how we ought to try and understand what is unfolding um, in the world. And in particular, of course, Huntington, and especially those who reference Huntington, um, are talking about the conflict between the West and, uh, and Islam. That's out there as an idea. Islam is a, is a great portmanteau entity that we are being invited to think about as if it is a kind of unity such that we can imagine a conflict between civilizations that are defined um, in these ways. And it's not an accident that there's this kind of discussion purporting, purporting to be a serious contribution to academic discussion, which I don't think it is. I don't think Huntington's uh, analysis is worth the paper um, it's written on. And, but why does, it, why does it get written now and why does it get widely, widely shared? Why does, it, why does it turn into a bestseller? Because, of course, it fits with what is going on. It fits with the framework provided for... Uh, by the war on terror since 2001. Um, within the frame, of course, of the war on terror, there is an upsurge of Islamophobia. And I think that upsurge of Islamophobia is now configuring into a sense, and I quite deliberately use this expression, a sense of a kind of international Islamic conspiracy. And I use that expression quite deliberately to echo the way in which the Nazis talked about the Jews and the international Jewish conspiracy. There is an element of that, I think, in the way in which a lot of politicians are now talking um, about the relationship with Islam. And if you want to sample modern Orientalism, then there's a whole kind of industry of games, of, of digital Orientalism, where you can go out there with the grunts, and you can zap the jihadists, zap the Muslim terrorists in uh, landscapes, in townscapes that are unmistakably um, Middle Eastern. I thought that this was a particularly telling image. This is American soldiers off duty um, uh, playing these kinds um, of games um, on a screen. And if a kind of Orientalism is out there which is, being, which is being encouraged by the war on terror, encouraged by the upsurge of Islamophobia. It is now taking a toxic form. And the very last comment I'm going to make is this. These people are fascists. I haven't the slightest doubt that what we are facing is creeping fascism and the war on terror and Islamophobia and the new Orientalism is creating a climate where this kind of pernicious politics can get a grip. There you go, I'm done. Neil, thank you very much for that absolutely enthralling lecture and bringing us, as you say, right up to date and 
posing some very thought-provoking uh, ideas there about what Orientalism means as it's been extended into the modern period. So um, Neil has very kindly agreed to answer questions, and I'm just going to leave him to take them as, as you choose. Mm. Okay, shall I field them? Uh, let's start down here. At the seminar uh, organized by the T.E. Lawrence Society at St. John's College, Oxford, there was a fascinating paper uh, by a Turkish uh, scholar um, acknowledging the um, non-existence of any mention of Lawrence in the Ottoman archives. And he seems to have done extensive uh, mm. research trying to find some sort of mention um, about this English leader of the Arab revolt. How would you react to the non-mention um, of Lawrence mm. in the Ottoman archives? Mm. Um, with not knowing what to say, is the, is the answer. I, I, I haven't the slightest idea how I would have responded to that were I sort of confronted with that question by the scholarly um, in question. And what I would say is this. Um, I can only work on the basis of the evidence which I have, which is partly the English language testimony and it's partly what we did archaeologically in the desert. We attempted to establish a working relationship with Turkish colleagues. We actually went to Istanbul and we established a, what we thought was a good working relationship with three Turkish colleagues in the history department of the University of Istanbul. And we even paid for one of them to come out uh, on one of our seasons so that he was actually there in the field with us for a few days. And then suddenly the contact went dead, completely dead. And phone calls wouldn't be returned, emails, there was no reply to emails and so on. It just went completely and absolutely dead. We don't know, but we can only guess that those scholars were warned off having an involvement with an archaeological project that was looking at the First World War in the Middle East because the official policy of the Turkish state is, of course, genocide denial, Holocaust denial in relation to what happened to the Armenians. And I know that it's extremely difficult for independent scholars to get access to the military archives in Ankara. So I would be a little bit suspicious for because that has been my experience of trying to work with, you know, in a genuine way, to try and work with, 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 with Turkish scholars on this. And because I've got no access to the Turkish sources, I would be flummoxed in trying to respond to what you've just told me. Yes, with the scarf. I have a big voice, so okay. <laughs> um, In the quotations by uh, Little Hart and uh, uh, Forster, the word crusade was mentioned. Now, whatever crusade historically meant, uh, crusades were wars of religion undertaken at the behest of a pope, were Christian military expeditions. Now, Lawrence was obviously a highly educated man. Uh, I mean, is there, you must have known the original meaning of the word crusade. Now, is there any time, in your opinion, in his uh, mindset, that he must have related 
even in a sort of um, underground way to that Christian background of a crusade. You mentioned the romantic element, that romanticism is a latter-day uh, uh, ideology. The Christian element was there. I think the answer is no. Um, I think as far as we can tell, I mean, he makes virtually no reference to religion in any of his writings, you know, private or public. Um, I think it's a reasonable guess that he was probably an atheist, but it's only a guess. He doesn't make any unequivocal statement about this. I think the term crusade is only being used in a generic sense in the sense in which you have heroes who go out to exotic locations and do deeds of daring do, much as the Arthurian heroes do. I think he's got that kind of sense of the Crusader Knights. And in fact, he doesn't seem to... You know, Little Hart says this, doesn't he? He says, it's a crusade in the modern form. Well, what's a crusade in the modern form? It's a national, what we would later call a national liberation struggle. I don't think Lawrence has any problem with that... Uh, with that reinvention, reuse, if you like, of the term. We don't use it now for the very obvious reason that there is much greater sensitivity to the implications of it as a colonial intervention or an imperialist intervention um, in, the, uh, in the Middle East. But I don't think they had that sensitivity at the time. And in fact, lots and lots of soldiers who were engaged in the Egyptian expeditionary force under Allenby they do talk about crusade. They talk about the last crusade. Um, they talk about being involved in it. They talk about being in the footsteps of the crusaders and so on. So that Christian sense of the crusade, you know, and the idea that they are liberating Jerusalem. I mean, the ludicrous idea that they're liberating Jerusalem. But they all have that sense. Um, but I don't really think Lawrence ever shares that because he's so much rooting for the Arabs and for a secular nationalist um, outcome on behalf of the Arabs to the First World War. I don't think religion is part of it, really. Right at the very back. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I've got one question, a little subsidiary one. Um, You went to his psychological problems. It may be related, I think, to the Treaty of Versailles, where he felt, I think he attended, didn't he, if I'm right, and he felt betrayed with this, uh, where where the carve-up wasn't what he had promised the Arabs, and that might have influenced his psychological um, uh, problems, if you could say them about that. Do a little bit of, I did read recently that well, we obviously said to the Arab world, but they also seem to have Zionist sympathies. So, the, you know, with the current conflict Israel and the Arabs, it's an interesting point. It's, it's any truth in that assertion. I've got two questions there. The main one, and just a little, if you could say anything on that. Can you just repeat the question again? On question. He felt betrayed that the promises he made to the Arabs weren't kept at Versailles, yes. and that might be one reason for psychological problems. Yes. Yes. So there's two questions, though. What, what, sorry, why are there two questions? I'm getting one. Yeah, the question is just, I did read recently that he had Zionist sympathies, too, that I don't know if there's any, any about that, that he, in Arab, he also had some sympathies of the Zionists, which was being developed at the same time. Do you I mean, know anything I, about that? I, well, I mean, what, I think what I would say about this is that his anxieties go back way before Versailles. Because um, it's actually very interesting when they kick in. Um, so this is a bit of the backstory which is relevant to this. I mean, he already knows it's a carve-up by Versailles, but he knows it's a carve-up in 1916. And initially, when the Arabs are fighting in the Hejaz region, that is in, in Arabia, 
the intended carve-up represented by the Sykes-Picot agreement, which reaches its final form in 1916, it doesn't really have major implications because nobody wants Arabia. The problem arises when Faisal comes under pressure not to move his armies northwards into Syria, using Syria in a geographical sense. And there's, a, there's, there's obviously a crisis in April 1917 because Lawrence talks about being summoned back to a conference with Faisal to discuss problems that Faisal has got in his relationship with other British liaison officers who are advising Faisal not to try and move his forces north into Syria. And why is that? Because if the Arabs get Aqaba and they're then able to project their forces northwards into Syria and up possibly as far as Damascus, they will position themselves where they might be able to challenge Sykes-Picot. And in particular, the French don't want the Arabs in Aqaba. They don't want the Arabs operating in Syria. They don't want the Arabs to take Damascus. So the British are trying to dissuade Faisal from doing that. Lawrence goes off the radar in May 1917. Nobody in Cairo has the slightest idea where he is. He disappears into the desert as part of a commando force of 50 or so men and re-emerges, as far as the British are concerned, two months later after they've captured Aqaba. This is a completely unauthorised operation. He explicitly tells us he didn't tell anybody where he was going because he thought he might have received a direct order not to do it. He's, in a sense, gone native, and he's, he's, he's deliberately trying to get an Arab army into Aqaba so that an Arab army can then project its forces um, northwards. And as he is engaged in this, he's already writing in his diary about his angst, about his concern about the implications of Sykes-Picot. And people who travel with him for part of this journey, they also report on how distressed he is, how depressed he is because of what's going on. So it goes right back to 1916. He's aware of what's intended. That's why he's active at Versailles. That's why he's active in the Paris, in the um, Cairo conference, because he's trying to salvage something uh, from what he sees as the wreckage, really, of Arab political hopes. Question at the back. When I was a schoolboy, my father and some of his friends used to murmur darkly about the involvement of the British government in the death of Lawrence. Yep. Is that complete nonsense? Well, I, I, I think it's probably... It's probably... I'm pretty certain that Lawrence had an, a motorcycle accident and there were no suspicious circumstances in relation to the actual death um, the one thing that's a bit odd is that one of the witnesses at the coroner's inquest reported seeing a black car and no investigation was ever, ever carried out about that. Now, normally at a coroner's inquest, if there was a piece of evidence like that, that would need to be investigated properly before the inquest could conclude. And the assumption of the family, I happen to know, uh, you know, the coroners, the descendants of the coroner. Um, they believe, the family story is that um, the coroner received uh, a telephone call from a very high-ranking member of the British government telling him to get the, uh, the inquest over and done with. Now, that's all there is. 
But the implication might be that Lawrence was being watched. Is there a reason for thinking he might have been under observation by British intelligence? Yes, I think so, because he was in communication with Henry Williamson, who was, if not a member of the British Union of Fascists, a supporter of the British Union of Fascists. And British intelligence must already have been concerned about the BUF because of the way in which relationships with Germany were deteriorating. And the last thing you would have wanted would have been somebody as high profile uh, as Lawrence associating himself with the BUF. So it's just possible he was under observation um, and the British authorities didn't want this black car to be investigated. But that's all. It's just a vague suggestion that there was something a little bit untoward going on. Right at the very back. Just add briefly to that. Um, I come from Dorset. There's someone in Dorset who is producing a film on this. Yes, I've heard of it. Which you perhaps know about. And it's got a definite... I don't, haven't talked to the person, but a definite view that the British intelligence were behind it. And this person is producing a film and has the money to do the film, which is halfway through being filmed, right. and has been trying to crowdfund money to get the film released. And they got a feature on this on BBC Regional News South and uh, a mention on the back of the Purbeck Film Festival leaflet. But since then, the National Trust staff and volunteers at Clouds Hill have refused to allow them to film at Clouds Hill and obviously view it with some distrust, Mm -hmm. considerable distrust. Now, I can't really add to that, except I did talk to a descendant of Lawrence who was sort of saying there was something that hadn't come out, but she was very strongly opposed to this... Yeah. Film. Yeah. So that you might just keep an eye out to see whether this film actually makes it. And if it does, be somewhat wary because the person producing the film has got a very definite viewpoint. Yeah. Probably without too much evidence, I suspect. Yes, thank you, thank you for that. And I had heard about this. Um, and um, I'll just share this with you as well. There is also a rumour that they want to remake Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. <laughs> in a different way and introduce some love interest (laughs) and you know (laughs) if you create one of the greatest masterpieces in the history of the cinema you don't want to try and compete with it do you really Um, I I hope this film doesn't get made I think it would be appalling if it does the chap right at the very back Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for a really great informative talk. Um, I have a question. I want to let you talk a little bit more about the archaeology. Um, I, I, when talking to especially sort of Levantine friends of mine, they all say that Seven Pillars of Wisdom is sort of a pile of garbage and can't really be trusted. When you say you have fact-checked it, could you talk a bit about yeah. what aspects of it that we can be totally certain of are true? And also, uh, I'm also interested in things like the relationships between the different peoples, some, for example, the al and the sheriffs of Mecca at the time. Mm. Is there any uh, information on those kinds of relationships as well? Mm. Thank you very much. Mm. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, uh, no is the sort of answer to the second bit of the question as far as the archaeology is concerned. What I will do is just focus on that question about the archaeology. Um, there are lots and lots of places that are referred to. So, in Seven Pillars of Wisdom, So the question becomes, is there a station in this location? Uh, How many buildings are there at the station? Is there a Turkish post at another location? Are there Ottoman trenches in yet another place and so on? Is there evidence of fighting at these locations where where Lawrence says there's fighting and so on? 
And again and again and again in the course of the project, we got direct confirmation, not just in general terms, but very often the precise detail. When we investigated the site of the Halat Amar ambush, right down very close to the Saudi border, uh, this is a very extended piece of battle description in Seven Pillars of Wisdom. It, it's, it runs across sort of three or four chapters altogether, this operation. Um, and we got the uh, location, thanks actually to John, our landscape archaeologist, who is sitting, uh, sitting in the audience. We got the location, um, and, the, uh, and then we visited the location. We got the location on, on, on Google Earth, and then we visited the location, and it fitted absolutely with Lawrence's description. We could see the curve in the railway line. We could see where the little bridge was, where the detonation was. We could see the ledge on which the Arab fighters were supposed to be. And when we did our metal detector survey, we had outgoing fire on the ledge. We had incoming fire in exactly the place where Lawrence says the machine guns cut down the retreating Turkish troops. We even had part of a Stokes mortar. And there, Lawrence says there was a Stokes mortar and two light machine guns um, at the site. Now, I give that as one example. Again and again and again, where it was possible to archaeologically test and attempt to ground truth, very often the, the precise detail of Lawrence's account, we were able to do so. What that then means is you have to say, well, Lawrence is not thinking when he's writing it, oh, they might be able to test that archaeologically, so I better get that bit right, and then I can make up the rest of it. It doesn't work like that. You have to assume that the rest of the testimony is basically, essentially, a truthful account, as far as he was able to uh, remember it. So I think you have to say to your Levantine friends, I'm sorry, the archaeologists have ground through the seven pillars of wisdom. Yeah. Shall I wait with my phone or shall I shout? It's coming. past the road where he died, everyone is like, oh, it's very exciting, he died there, uh, in a sort of weird uh, way. What I wanted to ask is, um, did you believe that um, romantic heroism is sort of innately, fundamentally kind of weaker than kind of other forms of heroism? Uh, how, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Exactly? Um, through that it's kind of always based in a fantasy, and that drive oh. comes from kind of fraudulent place almost. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to answer that in a slightly tangential way, if I may. Um, and I think what I would say is that heroism itself, whatever, whatever adjective you apply to it, heroism itself is a cultural construct. It's not a lived reality on the, on the battlefield. What happens on the battlefield is that most guys just keep their heads down. And they did, they did very interesting research... Um, American research on American GIs coming out of the Second World War, and they discovered that most guys coming out of combat hadn't fired their guns at the enemy. What most guys are doing most of the time on the battlefield is keeping their heads down. And then there's a minority who do the fighting, and everybody else is kind of moral weight, in a sense. So there are Audie Murphy-type characters. You know, he was a real war hero, war hero. And they do... The, so there are, there are head cases who do the actual fighting. Um, when they do that, I think on the battlefield, they don't do brave things for king and country or Kaiser and fatherland um, or the Ottoman Empire or whatever it is. They do it for their mates. 
so that if there's a machine gun nest which has got your guys pinned down, actually the guy who's prepared to go for it and try and take the machine gun nest out is doing it in order to protect his mates. And then sometimes people do things on the battlefield and, and it happens to get noticed and they decide to give that person a medal and they turn them into a hero. And what, I'm, what I mean when I say that heroes are constructs is that the, the individual has to be taken out of the framework of the combat where he's just basically operating as part of a group and turned into a hero that is being recognised more widely by society. And lots and lots of guys and sometimes women in you know, modern conflict do very, very brave things on the battlefield that never get recognised, which is why I would say we always need to think about heroes as, as cultural constructs, whether it's a, you know, a fantasy hero or a, or a real-life hero. Yeah. Uh, thank you for the great talk. Uh, you haven't mentioned charisma. Uh, it's difficult to imagine Lawrence doing what he did unless he was pretty charismatic. Mm. Um, how does that square with your portrayal of him as a rather recessive, damaged mm. character? Yeah. It's a good question and a question I can't answer. Um, I actually don't know. Um, crucial is the relationship with Faisal. And perhaps because he has the trust of Faisal, he therefore has the trust of other uh, leading Arab combatants, and they in turn have the relationship with their own rank and file, which means that Lawrence is accepted. But I absolutely take that point, um, that he's not a public speaker, he's not physically big, he's not a dominating presence, he's a very awkward, armoured, neurotic personality, he doesn't project well. Um, so maybe we need to say charisma is itself a construct. Maybe uh, charisma is a kind of cultural construct that, that, that arises in certain cases. And I, you know, t- you know, I look around the world today. Can I say something really, really sort of um, critical about you know, the current political elite? You look at people like Theresa May. <laughs> I mean, talk about charisma deficit, and what about Donald Trump? And his opinion poll ratings are still at 40%. How does that work? These are people who seem to me to be completely devoid of any kind of charisma, and yet they are in senior positions of political leadership. So this is a a huge, huge question. It requires a a PhD in a book, the whole discussion (laughs) of charisma. What is charisma, and how does charisma arise? No, oh, it's the last one. Okay. Um, I kind of have two questions. So, um, in like modern times, there is a toxic Orientalism. What was the, or what is the evidence of the Orientalism uh, during the time that um, Lawrence of Arabia um, grew up in to have such strong feelings, uh, such strong Orientalism towards Arabs? And the second question was, um, do you know anything about how um, the Arabs viewed him? Yeah, okay. Well, look, I mean, I, 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 I think the Orientalism at the time 
is, of course, deeply, deeply embedded in the whole kind of European colonial um, experience. I mean, Edward Said, of course, is the, his study of Orientalism is the, is the great study um, of this. It's the starting point, really, for any discussion of Orientalism. And I think it's different because it is an Orientalism which is concerned with how you view those who are to be colonised. And I think that's rather different from the Orientalism that we face at the moment. And the Orientalism that we face at the moment is how we view those who have war imposed upon them, have poverty imposed upon them, who are therefore displaced and are moving, and the numbers of people on the move are without historic precedent. 300 million people have been displaced and are on the move, it is estimated at the moment, and how we respond to those people when they are part of uh, the home uh, community, so, which is why I, I talk about a toxic Orientalism, which I think is different from that colonial mentality which existed at the time um, of Lawrence and was very, very deep-rooted in European elites. I think European elites really did think that they represented a superior civilization, which I think, I've already said, I think that was ironic when you actually look at the history of Europe. How ironic is that? And yet they really did have the sense that they were the guiding hand and they were going to bring people into the, um, into the modern world. And then your, your question about how Lawrence is viewed. Um, this question comes up a lot. And, um, it, the, you know, the people of the Middle East are not a homogenous entity, so there are many, many different uh, takes. Um, what I would say is that there are, I think that quite a lot of um, people who are informed, whose perspective is informed by Arab nationalism, or a form of Arab nationalism, um, are quite critical and dismissive of Lawrence. I mean, Suleiman Moussa's biography of Lawrence that was, came out in the 60s, I think, uh, is representative of that tradition. Where what Sule- Suleiman Moussa was a very good Jordanian historian, but what he's doing is he's trying to absolutely minimise the role of Lawrence. So it's a systematic attempt to minimise Lawrence's role. And I think that's probably wrong. I can understand where that's coming from, but I think it's probably wrong. And those people who are diminishing the role, sometimes they're saying, well, yes, he was sort of on the side of the Arabs, but he didn't play a major role. Other people are saying, well, look, he wasn't really on the side of the Arabs at all. He was an agent of British imperialism, which I think is fundamentally wrong, because he wouldn't have cracked up in the way that he did if he was simply that. And then there are people, and this is really more an oral tradition in the south, in the, in the more Bedouin areas, I think there is still actually an oral tradition among uh, tribal people, people who are still sort of connected with that nomadic way of life and the, and the desert and so on, where they do remember Lawrence as one of the key figures of the Arab revolt. I think that's actually, that's actually there. And it's borne out by some of the contemporary testimony, which does suggest, and it comes back to this thing about you know, what you were saying about the, the Turkish records, there are contemporary observers who report Lawrence as being hailed when he, you know, when he lands in an aeroplane at an Arab camp. He's hailed as you know, one of the leaders of the revolt and the rifles are fired in the air and all of that kind of thing. So I think there was that at the time, and I think that is still embedded within some of the folk traditions in southern Jordan. My last comment is this. We discovered in the course of the project that when we sort of talked about people, when we talked to people about it and and, and when we had things reported to us, 
our Jordanian colleagues translating the Arabic for us, we became aware that, or we suspected, that sometimes there was confusion in the folk tradition between the Arab revolt and the movie. Because when they made the movie, they hired hundreds of extras, hundreds of horses and hundreds of camels, and they were all charging around with plastic rifles. And we suspect that sometimes there's been a confusion in the tradition that's been passed down um, about whether it's, 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 it's granddad or dad's role in, as an extra in the movie as opposed to great-granddad's role in the actual revolt. We're done. Yeah. Neil, on behalf of CBRL and all of us here this evening, thank you for the most fascinating, engaging and thought-provoking lecture uh, based on your own deep scholarship, your great uh, insights and your thoughtfulness about so many aspects of Lawrence the myth, but also uh, the myth of the Orientalist aspect of his, of, of his legend. Thank you so much, and uh, we're, great, we're very grateful to you, and I'm sure all of us who haven't already got the book will be buying it. Thank you, guys.